You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. We do say all glory be to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you, holy triune God, that you revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus and that your scriptures bear witness to him. So we pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we would not just be hearers today, but doers of your word, responding to it with the whole of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. So great to see you. I know it's chilly in here, but that's better than being like super hot, right? I think. Um, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles. We started a sermon series last week on John chapters 14 through 17. It's a very, very special portion of scripture that records um, some of the last instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples before his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's teaching us about what it means to live uh, with and follow Jesus when he's not around, which is where we are in this season of Eastertide. So um, let's Look at John chapter 14, verses 5 through 14 together, picking up um, from where we were last week. Jesus had said that he was going to the Father. He said that you know the way to the place I'm going, and we pick up there in verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're in the season of Easter Tide. It's the second Sunday of Easter. No, this, I guess the third Sunday of Easter. And we are contemplating the resurrection of Jesus. And what we've been saying and what we're doing in this series is that we are really focusing in on what is one of the most basic and beautiful implications of the resurrection And that's just the simple truth of the availability of Jesus, that Christians um, don't worship and follow a dead religious teacher of the past, but we worship and follow a risen Lord of the present, indeed the Lord of all history. And in this section of scripture, John 14 through 17, Jesus is making this amazing promise to us where he is promising to be always with us, always with you. That's the name of this series, always with you. He's making a promise that there will never be a moment in your life, there will never be a moment in your life, no matter how dark or how scary, 
there will never be a moment when you are alone. That with Jesus at all times and all places, with him in him, you are always accompanied, always companioned, always home. That's the promise. And we, we need to know that, don't we? Don't you need to know that? I mean, remember the context of this passage. The context of the passage is that the disciples are really scared and they're feeling bereft and they're feeling unmoored and they're feeling even abandoned. And that's the way a lot of us feel. And Jesus keeps telling them that he's about to leave them and they don't know where he's going and they don't know what he's doing and they feel scared and they feel alone. And Jesus is offering them comfort in the midst of their fear. What does Jesus say to them to comfort people like us who are feeling a bit shaken and alone? Well, we looked at one thing he said last week that Jesus promises to make a home for us in the Father's house, that we're moving towards a renewed world where we'll be at home with him forever. But it doesn't seem like, at least initially, the disciples are very um, comforted by this promise. And so Philip makes this request to him in verse eight, and this is really the, the, the core verse, I think, the key verse of this text. Philip's request is this, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. What's Philip after? What's he's asking for? Well, of course, we don't know Philip's mind. We don't know exactly what he's feeling and thinking at this moment, but here's what I'm guessing that he's thinking, that Jesus, you know, that's great. It's great that one day we'll get to be with you again. It's great that one day we'll be at home in the Father's house with you that's really great, Jesus. How, how wonderful. But what about now? Right? Because like things aren't going well right now. And things are really scary right now. And things don't seem, it's, you know, great. We'll have a happy ending one day. What about now, Jesus? Can you give us some kind of encouragement for the here and now? And I think that's probably the way that some of you feel sometimes. Like we know as Christians that we have an ultimate hope of one day being with Jesus and one day having a place with him at the Father's house. But then you're kind of like, but right now my marriage is falling apart. And right now I don't know what to do about my kid. And right now I'm in financial trouble. And right now my health is failing. And right now I just feel really, really, really lonely. And that's kind of what Philip is saying. He's saying, look, show us the Father, not someday, but now. We need an, I need an experience of God. I need to know that God is with me. I need to know that God is enough. That's all that I need now. Can you give me that, Jesus? Is God near? Is God with us now? And how Jesus responds to Philip's request. Seriously, y'all, it may be one of the most astonishing thing any human has ever said. And it's the most wonderful comfort to those who may be feeling afraid and alone. What does Jesus say to Philip? Well, let's just unpack that together, okay? Because it's really remarkable. The first thing that Jesus says to Philip, to his request, is he says to him that he is revealing the identity of God. That he's revealing the identity of God. Philip has a very high view of Jesus, right? He thinks that Jesus is a very great teacher. He probably also thinks that he's the Messiah. So he's this promised redeeming person that God promised to send. And so because he has this high view of Jesus and because Jesus is like the holiest and most powerful person he's ever met, he's thinking, well, if anybody can tell me what God is like, Jesus can. So he asks him. But Jesus answers in a way that Philip never expected. He says in verse nine, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me 
has seen the Father. So, I mean, Jesus' claim is so shocking. It's like Philip's view of Jesus was very high, but it was not high enough. Jesus is saying to Philip, I am not just representing God, I am presenting God. He says in, in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's saying that I am the Son as the Son of God. I am so intimately linked with God the Father that in knowing and experiencing me, you know and experience the living God. If you know me, you know God. If you see me, you see God. If you're with me, you're with God. If you experience me, you have the very presence of the eternal, everlasting creator God right with you right here, right now. It's kind of shocking. What Jesus is getting at here um, is what theologians call um, the doctrine of revelation. Um, it's very common these days, I think you'll often hear that um, people will say things like, it's really impossible for any human to know the absolute truth, um, especially about God, right? When it comes to God, when it comes to truth, right? It's no, no human can ever really know. Um, it's no human can ever claim to have access to the ultimate truth about reality. And I think actually Christians would agree with that in part, right? Um, we, we, from our limited position as human beings, no one could ever figure out who and what God is. We can maybe learn from creation and from the world that there is a God or what God might be like, or even that God is good, but that's about as far as we can get when it comes to the true identity of the invincible, invisible, inaccessible, beyond us God that seems like we humans are just stuck. Except, what if truth came from the other direction? What if, instead of us trying to work our way up to figure out the identity of God, what if God worked his way down to us to reveal the identity of God to us? And that's called revelation. That's God revealing himself to us. So here's an example. Kids, you can help me with this. I am thinking right now of an animal. What is it? What is it? Three-toed sloth, no. Nellie, what did you say, Nellie? A bat, no. Lion, no. Dog, no. You're all wrong. Sheep, no. No, you're, you're all wrong. No, kids, I'm sorry. Um, there's no way to know, right? You can guess, you can conjecture, but you can't be sure. And a lot of, I think a lot of people assume that God is sort of like that, right? Like we can guess, we can guess about what God might be like, but no one can, can really know. But look, you don't know what animal I'm thinking of because I have not revealed it to you. You don't have access to my thoughts. <laughs> you can stop guessing now. But what if, what if I revealed my thoughts to you? What if I told you that I'm thinking about a naked mole rat? None of you guessed it. A naked mole rat, right? So... I could reveal it to you. I could tell you. And see, this is what Christians believe is happening with God is that actually from this way up, there's no way. We would never, you could never guess it. You would never know what God is like. But what God has done is he has actually revealed his whole person to us, that he's made it accessible and that he has, he wants to be known and that he has fully disclosed and revealed himself in and through the person of Jesus. And so we don't have to be in the dark anymore. Nobody says to a woman who is 30 weeks pregnant, do you really know that that's a baby in there? I mean, do you really know? Nobody says that. Why? Because we have ultrasounds and pictures and videos and models and detailed physiological descriptions, right? We do not have to wonder or guess 
what is, is in there because we know, right? We're no, we're no longer in the dark. And in the same way, Jesus says, you don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to be in the dark about what God is really like or who God is or if God loves me or if God is really there when it comes to God. God has gone beyond metaphors. He's gone beyond descriptions. He's gone parchment and paper. He's actually come right into our presence to say, here I am, that in seeing Jesus, we're not just getting a picture of God or a lesson or, or, or a metaphor, that we actually get the person of God in our space. And as you see Jesus in action, you see God in action. As you see Jesus teaching, you see God teaching. As you see Jesus loving and serving and feeding and coming alongside people in pain, you see God doing this. As you see Jesus getting on his knees to wash the feet of dirty disciples, you see God doing that. As you see Jesus suffering and dying, you see God suffering and dying. Do you all see the wonderful gift this is? That I mean, sometimes I hear people say, like, I love Jesus, but I just don't, I just can't grapple with the idea of God. But y'all, there's no, there's no God that is behind the back of Jesus. There's no like sullen, angry, capricious God that is hiding behind him somewhere. There's no like mysterious divine entity that surprise, you're gonna meet someday and you're gonna be like, oh man. Like Jesus fully reveals who God is, his love, his character, his mercy, his kindness. To see Jesus is to see God. And do you see how comforting this is for people like Philip who might be feeling scared or abandoned or alone? Jesus says to Philip, you can stop your wondering and your searching and you don't have to wonder what God is like and if God is near. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father and in knowing me, you actually know and experience the truth and the meaning and the character and the presence of the living God. What a gift. We're not in the dark. So that's the first thing Jesus says is he reveals the identity of God. The next thing he says that's pretty shocking is that he says that he is actually showing us the way to God the way to God. Um, The disciples don't just want to know who God is. They want to know how to get to God so they can have a relationship with him, so they can know him personally. And so again, Jesus says something that kind of takes their breath away. He says in verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims, (laughs) y'all, I mean, Jesus, John Stott in one of his books, Basic Christianity, says Jesus is, breathtakingly egocentric. And it only makes sense if he's telling the truth. Because if he's not telling the truth, you don't want anything to do with him. (laughs) Because what Jesus is saying is that not only is he revealing the identity of God, but he's actually the only way to God. And he's the only way that we have access to the true and living God. Now, at first glance, um, this claim to be the only way and pathway to God sounds outrageous and even offensive, especially in a really diverse and religiously pluralistic world like we live in. Um, I think a lot of people kind of feel, and actually one of our great cultural icons, um, Oprah Winfrey, who's actually, you know, I like Oprah. She's great in a lot of ways, but she says this, um, one of the biggest mistakes that we could ever make is to believe that there is only one way. Um, There are many diverse paths leading to God. And, you know, often you'll hear people use a metaphor like that, um, the different religions of the world are like different pathways all leading up the same mountain, right? That they're all different and diverse and all their different expressions, but ultimately they're all 
leading up the same mountain, the same summit to God. And that feels like a very respectful and modest way to handle the challenge of religious diversity. Here's the problem with that, guys. Here's the problem with it. Um, The religions of the world are extremely diverse. They're deeply contradictory and even unreconcilable. Um, And the only way that you could ever say all religions are paths leading up the same mountain, the only way you could ever say that is if you had a place in a superior position above the mountain looking down to see the whole picture, right? It's a claim to have knowledge that no one else has, claiming that you can see the whole mountain while each of the individual religions cannot. And so it's ultimately not respectful at all. It's, it's actually highly disrespectful to each of the religions, very unique and particular beliefs. So saying all religions are basically the same and equally valid sounds modest, but actually it could be the most arrogant claim of all because you're saying that you somehow have access to a perspective that is able to reconcile diametrically opposed belief systems. Now, why am I saying this? Because look, Jesus's claim about himself is very narrow. I'm not gonna try to excuse that. It's, it's very exclusive. He's saying, I'm the way. But here's the thing. So is every other religious claim, <laughs> right? If you say all religions are the same, that is a claim to know the truth about the religions. And therefore you exclude all the people of the individual religions who disagree with you. And so whatever you say about God, whether you say there is a God or there is no God, or no one can know God, or this is the path to God, or all ways to God are the same. Every one of those claims is a narrow claim to know the truth. And so in the end, I think the better question to ask is, which narrow claim about God is true? Which narrow claim about God brings the most truth, the most beauty, the most clarity about the human story? And this is why I think Jesus' claim, despite being very narrow, is actually very beautiful and surprisingly inclusive. Here's why. How does a person get to God? That's what Philip wants to know. How do you get to God? Well, speaking very broadly, most every religion says that uh, between us and God, there's a gap, whatever a religion may describe God to be. Between us, humanity and God, there's a gap. And what we need to do is to do something to overcome the gap to get to the divine, right? And so every religion says in different ways, here's what you need to do. Do this, um, give this, live this way, uh, practice your life in this way, meditate in this way, pray in this way, sacrifice this way. And when you do, you will overcome this gap and reach the divine, right? But the emphasis in every case is on you, what you need to do to get to God. Your efforts, your work, your religious performance, that's the way to get to God. And the reason why what Jesus says here is so shockingly different is because he says, I am the way, right? He says, you can't actually get to God. You can't overcome the gap. You can't bridge it yourself. So I, here's what's happening. I am God in the flesh who has overcome the gap to get to you. So Jesus claims to be not just one more teacher to show us how to be good, but that he came to be good for us to deal with our moral failures, that it's not our efforts and our work and our performance that get us to God, but it's Jesus in his work and his efforts in his performance that get us to God. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life that through him and him alone, humans can get to God. And, and, Do do y'all see what wonderfully good news this is? 
in a religious system, who gets in? Who gets in, y'all, in a religious system? The good performers, right? The people who do it well, the people who can achieve, the, 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 the good people. It's the people who have proven themselves. But talk about exclusive, right? That leaves out so many people. That leaves out all the bad people. <laughs> that leaves out sinners. That leaves out uh, poor performers. That leaves out uh, Peter, denier, Thomas, doubter. It certainly leaves out me. In a performance-based religious system, we're all excluded. And so what's so amazing about what Jesus is saying, by saying, I am the way, he's offering us grace. To quote one of the great theologians of our time, Bono, um, I'm listening to his memoir, by the way, it's really awesome. He says this, listen, listen to Bono. He says, along comes this idea called grace to upend the systems of religion. Grace defies reason and logic. Grace interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. He actually uses a more colorful um, word there. He said, I'd be in big trouble if religious performance was going to finally be my judge. It does not excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins under the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Y'all, religion is all about how you perform for God. Grace is all about how God has performed for you. Whereas religion gives us all the things we must do to climb up the mountain to God, the Christian claim is that we are so completely unable to God that God has climbed his way down to us. And that in, instead of depending on what I do for myself, grace says we can depend on what Jesus did for us instead. And so is the claim of Jesus to be the only way to God, narrow and exclusive? Yes, it is. But it is the most inclusive exclusivity out there. It's like walking through a narrow cave door and finding an enormous football field cavern inside. <laughs> because with Jesus, it's not the good and the moral and the righteous who get in. It's the humble. It's those who know they need grace. And it's not the bad who are out. It's the proud. It's those who think they can make their way up to God. Jesus says, I am the way. And through me, everybody is invited. The good and the bad, right? Everybody, no matter your past or your performance or your background or your mess ups, all can come to the Father through me. I am the way. The most inclusive exclusivity imaginable. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? I'm sorry, that was a very dense point. But are y'all following me? <laughs> Some of y'all went to sleep like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> okay, so what is Jesus saying? He say, first, he's saying he reveals the identity of God. We don't have to be in the dark anymore about who God is. And then he says he's opening a way to God, and that way is grace, Right? And then finally, just one last thing. It's a very small point. Don't worry. I'm going to end on time. He says he's offering us the presence of God. Okay, that's the last thing. Look at this funny thing that Jesus says in verse 12. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Y'all, this, this may be the craziest thing Jesus says in this whole section. Um, the, the scholar, um, the Bible scholar, Dale Bruner says, um, this is the one place where Jesus is deeply mistaken. Um, and he's kind of saying it tongue in cheek. But I mean, seriously, um, no, no. We will not do th greater things than Jesus 
I, I will never, um, I do not do miracles on a daily basis. I do not raise the dead. I do not heal the sick. I do not um, atone for the sin of the world. I do not reconcile humanity to God, right? <laughs> so no, no human being will ever sort of do, be able to do what Jesus did. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, all the commentators seem to agree that what Jesus is referring to here is not, he's not talking about that we will do what he does qualitatively, but he's saying we will do greater things than him quantitatively. Does that make sense? Let me explain. Um, Jesus' followers quantitatively have done far more than Jesus ever did. When, when, um, when Jesus ascended into heaven, his entire ministry had taken place within about a 30-mile radius. It was almost entirely among Jewish people, and he only had a handful of about 100 followers at the end. Within 20 years of Jesus' ascension, there were thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus from many nations and cities. And 2,000 years later, there are people from every tribe and tongue and language, billions of people who know and name the name of Jesus. Greater things. And this is what Jesus means. He's giving us a sneak peek into what we'll talk about next week, that Jesus is about to give us the Spirit and that Jesus, through the Spirit, will be more present to his people than he has ever been. And he will continue to do amazing works of power and grace in and through his people and the power of the Spirit. It's only by Jesus leaving and giving us the Spirit can the amazing power of this work can be accomplished. More on that next week. But here's just what I wanna say to you now. Not only does Jesus reveal God's identity, not only does he give us entry into a relationship with God, but then he gives us what we need to have the very presence and power and person of God right in the middle of our lives so that you are truly never, ever alone. And that's what we need more than anything. So let me go back to where we started. A lot of us are hurting. A lot of us are in some very challenging situations. And so naturally, we want God to fix things and we want God to make our problems go away. We want our lives to get better. And I know for me, many of our prayers are asking for more stuff for God to fix our problems and solve our pain. But have you ever noticed that in many of the great prayers of the Bible, like in Ephesians 3, that we'll use to close the service in just a moment, that the great um, saints like Paul never seems to pray for people's circumstances. Instead, he prays for more of God. He says things like, I pray that your eyes would be open, that you would know the depth and the height and the length and the width of the love of God so that you would grow up into the fullness of God. Paul prays not for solutions, but for a deeper experience of God. And I think this is what Philip is ultimately asking for. Jesus, what Jesus is offering is what we really need more than any fix, more than any solution. He's offering the very presence of the living God right in the center of your ordinary life so that at every moment you can be at home with the God of the universe. So I think what Jesus would say is you struggle along in life, as I do too, is that you don't ultimately, don't just go after better solutions. Don't, don't just try to fix your problems and don't just go for a better life. You can have the best circumstances in the world and not have what Jesus is offering here and in the end have nothing. What we need is more of God. What we need is to go after God and with the very presence of God in our lives, we'll be able to withstand any trial and have hope in any suffering and have joy in the midst of any pain. Jesus says, know me, get to know me, 
dwell with me, abide with me, live with me, walk with me, because with me, connected with me, you have the Father's love and the Spirit's presence right in the center of your life. You are never alone. This is the astonishing promise that Jesus is offering. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. That will be enough. Just give us that. And Jesus says, in me, you see the Father. With me, you have access into the heart of God. And with me in the spirit, you have the presence of God in the center of your life. Y'all, truly, this is enough. This is enough for anything we would ever face. This is the gift that Jesus offers us, the risen Lord. So let, let's, let's just thank God and praise him for this gift that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you and thank you that you give us exactly what we need. You don't always fix our problems. You don't always fix our pain. But ultimately, you give us what we truly need, which is the knowledge of who God is for us, access to God that we might have a relationship with him through grace. And ultimately, you give us the very presence of the living God right in the center of our lives. We're so grateful I pray this week that we would go after that, what we most need, and that you would give it to us through the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.